So the other day, <clears throat> my wife, Amy, uh, she made some biscuits for our family for breakfast, which if you don't know this about my wife, she's an incredible cook. Like she, everything she makes, she's just so like so gifted. It's such a gift to our family. And uh, she made biscuits. She always makes them from scratch, like grinds the wheat, does everything like from scratch. And they're so delicious. And the other morning we were eating biscuits and this thing happened that happens almost every time that she makes, makes biscuits now is that uh, someone in our family, usually, usually one of my boys just come out, they'll be like eating one of these delicious biscuits and then they'll bring up, they'll, they'll be like, hey mom, you remember that time you made us biscuits and instead of baking powder, you used baking soda? And I don't know if you've ever tasted a biscuit with baking soda and no baking powder, but just imagine like a really dry hockey puck that tastes bitter and kind of weird in your mouth. Like that's, that's a baking soda biscuit. And, uh, you know, they said this, and Amy, we all kind of laugh around our table, and, and Amy makes this comment. She goes, you know, it's so funny to me that <clears throat> despite the fact that dozens of times now I've made delicious biscuits, every time we eat the delicious biscuits, you bring up the bad biscuits. <laughs> every single time, they bring up the bad biscuits. But, you know, when I, I kind of laughed as she said that, but I realized, like, man, isn't that just our human tendency? That no matter how much of a good thing we have, the moment that the bad thing pops up, we're like, oh man, and that's what we tend to fixate on. Like we focus on the negative feeling experience so much more than we tend to focus on the positive feeling experience. You know, this is actually a scientifically observable trait in humanity. There's a therapist named uh, Dr. John Gottman and Gottman, he's written all kinds of resources on marriage counseling and he actually claims that he can predict the outcome of a, of a, of a romantic relationship by just watching that, watching a couple uh, deal with conflict for 15 minutes. He said, I can watch a couple try to navigate conflict for 15 minutes and I can tell you exactly how they're gonna end up. He says, because successful couples, for every one negative interaction, they will have five positive interactions. In other words, for every negative interaction you have with another person, it takes five positives to overcome the one negative. There's just something about a negative feeling experience that for whatever reason brings more weight to us as people, feels more weighty to us than the positive feeling experiences. I have found this to be true in my experience with the scriptures. I've also found it to be true when I try to teach the Bible that I can, I can teach and lay out or I can meditate upon a list of all the goodness of who God is, all the attributes of God's goodness, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his compassion. I can look at all of this, but all it takes is one confusing passage and immediately seems to throw us off and derail everything that God was trying to do in our hearts. Have you ever experienced this before? You're looking at something, you go, man, this is really good, and then something gets confusing and it makes you go, oh, wait a minute, what? And it kind of just throws it all off. You know, we've been in this series in Exodus 34 now for a while, and every week we read this passage. And we're gonna read it here in just a minute, you know, but the purpose of this series has been to go, man, we want to explore the indescribable nature and goodness of who God is. We're just like taking a deep dive into God's character and what, he, what he's like and who he is. And we've used this verse because it's this moment, the only place in scripture where God himself gives a description of who he is and what he's like. It's the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So this is, this is the passage that gets repeated more than any other passage in Scripture, and it's God revealing his character and his goodness. And we're going to read this verse together, and I guarantee you we will all feel the same thing that we've felt almost every single week when we've read it when we get to the very last portion of the verse. Let's look at it together. Exodus 34, it'll be up on the screen, starting in verse 6. It says, And he, this is the Lord, this is Yahweh, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, 
The Lord, the Lord, if you've been with us, you know that's Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the name of God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, the third and the fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. You know, every week when I read this passage, when I've read this, I've, I've, I can feel the like, oh, <laughs> what? Like tension, in the, like this weird off-putting thing in the room. In fact, every week I've felt this temptation to name it. Hey, we're going to get to some of the hard stuff at the end. We're going to get there, I promise, you know. As we've gone through this series and every week we've talked about God being compassionate, God being eternal, God being gracious, God being good, God being abounding in love and faithfulness. We've all had this thing playing in the back of our mind. Yeah, but what is with that last weird verse? In fact, I've had several of you come up to me and ask me, like, hey, when are we going to get to that weird thing at the end? And guys, there's a real, there's a real danger here if we're not careful that we will start looking at this whole passage through this lens of a misunderstanding about a few words that we don't understand. Everything we've said about God up until this point has been true. He is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and in faithfulness. He is all-knowing. He is eternal. He is not limited in resources. He is forgiving. All of these things are true. And if we're not careful, we'll let one verse that feels confusing and we'll start judging his compassion and his graciousness based on this one thing. We'll go, well, how compassionate could he really be if that's true? And I just want to encourage us this morning, like let's give the text a chance to speak to our hearts, to really get a glimpse of who he is and what's happening here and not let a misunderstanding of a few words mess up everything that we have seen in the goodness of who God really is. He's amazing. He's amazing. So let's let him speak for who he is and what he's like. We're going to go line by line through verse 7 today. And we're going to look at every phrase and every word. And I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm actually excited about unpacking this with us because it is a truly incredible picture of who God is and what he's like. It's not something we have to be scared of. It's not something we should be um, like run away from but it's something we should be drawn to. So let's start with the very first line, verse seven. He says, maintaining love to thousands. I love this because the passage before this, it says he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And so what what God is saying about himself here, he's saying, listen, I'm not only abounding in love, but I actually want to maintain that love. The word maintain means to guard or to protect or to watch over. So what God is saying is this imagery is like God not only wants to give us his love, he wants to give us his love, and then he wants to do everything he can to make sure that the love he puts in you stays right there where it is. He wants to protect it, to hem it in on every side. He wants to make sure that his love remains in your heart. I love Psalm 40, verses 11 and 12 says this, The psalmist says, do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord, but may your love and your faithfulness always protect me. The cry there is, Lord, let your love and your faithfulness be a protection to the mercy and love that you already put in me. 
And this is what God promises. He says, I'm abounding in love. Like there's so much love I have to give and I want to give it to you and then I want to protect it and make sure that it actually stays right there in you. I have invested in you and I will make sure my investment bears the fruit that I promise you that it will bear. Big takeaway here is that God wants to make sure every person receives his love. That no matter what troubles come against you, no matter what hardship is thrown at you, he wants to make sure that his love in your heart does not get stolen away or snatched away and he will go to every length possible to maintain that love in your life. And then it keeps going. It says, forgiving wickedness, sin, and rebellion. You know, the first word of this phrase, forgiving. Just such a beautiful picture of who God is. I think for many of us, we think of the word forgiveness in the Bible and we naturally go, oh yeah, that's like the New Testament version of God, Old Testament version of God. Man, he was not very forgiving. He was angry at me. And one of my biggest goals of this series, one of the things we've hoped for more than anything is that we will crush this false narrative that says the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. It is not true. Right here, Yahweh God, he says, I'm, I'm maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Do you know that this word, forgiveness, is used 658 times before the New Testament even begins? Referencing who God is and what he's like. Before Jesus ever puts on flesh and walks amongst us, God reveals himself as a forgiving God 658 times. The word forgiving literally means to lift up, to carry, to take away. It gives us this beautiful picture of what God wants to do with wickedness, rebellion, and sin. His belonging of his heart, the nature of who he is, is to lift that off of us to take it away, to carry it away. Now we know the ultimate expression of that is at the cross, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's like this is, this is Yahweh God revealing who he is. He didn't change his mind. It wasn't God the angry dad in the Old Testament and the young enlightened son showing up in the New Testament turning things around. That's not what happened. It is the same God. Yahweh is the same cover to cover, beginning to end. Forgiving, but what does he forgive? It says he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I love that there's three words here. He's going, I want you to understand how complete my forgiveness is. It's not just about one thing, but everything that can and has gone wrong with humanity, the desire of my heart is to forgive it. He says wickedness. Wickedness, you know, I, I think we have a mis, misperception of wickedness because, you know, I think, when I think of wickedness, I think of like, the Wicked Witch from like the Wizard of Oz or something. You know, we think of wicked as like the worst of the worst. But in reality, wickedness, uh, some of your Bibles may even have the word iniquity there. Wickedness simply means, you know, it, is, it means to turn aside from what is good and right. Wickedness simply means to turn aside from what is good and what is right. You know, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I can, I'll raise my hand. There have been plenty of times in my life where I have turned aside from what I knew to be good and what I knew to be right. And this word wicked is what is used to describe that. We don't like to think of ourselves as being wicked, but we fall in that category if you've ever turned aside from what is good and right. Now, the second word is rebellion. Rebellion is a little bit differently. It is more defiant. Rebellion carries with it this idea of a willful violation of God's covenant with you. 
This is not merely like disobeying a rule or a regulation, but betraying the very relationship that you have with the God who's covenanted with you. And if you weren't here several weeks ago, we talked about Israel. Israel, in this story, they're actually in the middle. They have been in the middle of signing, agreeing to a covenantal relationship with God. And in the middle of the ceremony, they betray him and they build an idol. And we talked about how it'd be like the bride at a wedding making out with her ex-boyfriend on the dance floor right in front of her groom. It's this moment of rebellion, of pushing against like intentional, willful wrongdoing in the face of the one you've covenanted with. Right in the middle of that, what does God say? I'm forgiving of wickedness and rebellion. I don't know what you've done in your life. And I know all of us have things we've done that we just intentionally, you know what? I'm just gonna do the thing I'm not supposed to do. I'm just gonna do it. Forget it, I'm just going for it. And sometimes after the fact, when you do that thing that is so openly rebellious, I know the temptation or the thought in your mind could be like, how could God ever forgive me when I just willingly and knowingly did that thing I knew I wasn't supposed to? And yet here, right here, we have this picture of the heart of God. He says, I maintain my love to thousands and I'm forgiving of wickedness and rebellion. And then that third word, sin. Sin is the most general of those, these three words, and it refers to any kind of moral failure. Can you see what God is trying to reveal about himself here? He says, I am willing, I'm not just willing, it is in my nature, it is in my character to forgive all of it. All of the places where you've steered and gone the wrong way, all of the places where you have rebelliously pushed against me, all of the places where you have been immoral or done the thing you're not supposed to do, he says, I want to forgive. Can you see he's building on his character? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He says, and I long to forgive you. I know you can't live up to the the bigness and the nature of who I am, but it's in my heart to want to offer you forgiveness, to lift all of that off of you and to carry it away from you forever. This is the description of God's character. It's who he is. It's not just that God forgives, it's that he is forgiving. And then he says this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And we all go, oh, baking soda biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, and I want to make sure this is really clear. My wife made baking soda biscuits by mistake. It was an accident. She didn't do it intentionally, right? But this is not the case here. This is who God is. This is a continuing narrative of God's character, of what he's like. And I wanna take, take some time to unpack it a little bit because it feels to us as Western, modern Americans, like we go, ah, this is, I don't know. These feel like they're contradicting. They're not contradicting at all. God is all of the things that we've already said and he is also this God. This is, you know, we would use the word, this is a God of justice. He's a God of justice, that when there is wrongdoing, he is a forgiving God, and he is also a just God. He's willing to forgive anyone for anything. In fact, he desires to forgive anyone for anything. But here's the thing, 
and this might sound kind of weird, but this is the simple truth. There are people who for one reason or another do not want God's forgiveness. Now you may go, well, that's kind of weird. Like who doesn't want God's forgiveness? I'll give you two different types of people, okay? One of them we'll spend more time talking about. The first one is, is a person who, who, you know, they're aware that there is good and evil and they're aware that the things they're doing are actually not in line with what is right and they just don't care. They continue to do what is best for them regardless of how it affects anyone around them and they will constantly step on anyone they need to to get where they wanna get to lift themselves up and they don't give a rip about any God who tells them otherwise or about any other person they may hurt along the way. These are people that go, I don't care about God's forgiveness, I don't need it. Now the reality is you may have known some people like this in your life, but my guess is the majority of the people we interact with fall under the second category that I'm gonna give you. So the first person doesn't want God's forgiveness because they just don't care, but I believe there's a second category of people. Some people don't want forgiveness because they deny or are unaware of the fact that they are even sinful. If you're not aware that you are sinful, then you don't know that you need to ask for forgiveness. I think so often this is why the gospel falls on deaf ears in our culture. Beloved, we live in a culture that says the greatest value is tolerance. We live in a culture that says the most important thing is that you be authentic, be true to you, and do what's right for you. And so when you try to share the good news that, hey, God is a forgiving God, he forgives all wrongs, a person who's, who's gone, no, I'm, I'm tolerant, I'm true to myself, Sometimes there's this, there's this tendency to go, well, why does he need to forgive me? I'm a good person. I don't, I'm not sure that I need forgiving. In a, in, in a culture like ours, forgiveness is sometimes misunderstood because we're not even aware that we need it. And there are some natural repercussions of this in a culture, and I think you'll see these pretty plainly as I talk about them. In a culture where nobody ever has to acknowledge their own wrongdoing, when something goes wrong, what do we tend to do? If something goes wrong and I'm not, I'm not able to look at my own self and my own issues, you know what I'm gonna end up doing? I end up blaming somebody else. I mean, I see this so plainly in my kids when I walk into the room and my kids are fighting and I go, hey, what's going on? Guess what the first thing they say is, well, he or she, they start talking about their sibling and what their sibling did. Very seldom do I walk in the room and they go, well, dad, let me tell you all the things that I did wrong to contribute to this situation. <laughs> Man, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Doesn't always happen that way, right? But, but it's not just kids, like we all do this, right? Think about our culture. When something goes wrong in our nation, who does the right blame? The left. Who does the left blame? They blame the right. When something's going wrong in the world, we tend to want to point at other nations and what this other nation is doing wrong, right? Like, oh, it's all China's fault. If China would just stop being China, everything would be all right, you know? Like, we just want to blame. Oh, it's the Russians. Oh, it's just the, for the Russians. We constantly want to look for somebody else to point the finger at. And this is because we are unable or unwilling to see our own contribution to the problem at hand. Some people... They don't want forgiveness because they don't know that they need forgiveness because they're not aware that they actually have things in their life that are offensive to the God that created them. And when our society 
denies this idea. There's this reality in the Bible, right? There's this reality that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard it, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When a society pushes that completely to the side, it has real-world implications for how things play out. We have to start blaming one another. It can't be about my sin. When we can't be aware of our need for forgiveness, we live in denial, and this ongoing denial is deeply fracturing to our society, and it is deeply fracturing to our relationship with God. And here's how this plays out. If, if we cannot admit that we are sinful, then we cannot receive the forgiving God's forgiveness. He longs to give it. It's in his heart to give it. He desires to give it. But if I'm going, I don't need it, thank you very much, I'm good. Then what is the result? What is the result? And this is where he says, but I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And we go, let me say this up front. I believe with all of my heart, every bit of me, that God's justice is a good thing. It is a good thing. A little bit of perspective for the people that are hearing this for the first time in Exodus. You know, the Israelites are hearing about these attributes of who God is. They're hearing that he's compassionate, that he's gracious, that he's abounding in love. They're hearing that he is forgiving for the wicked, the rebellious, for the sinful. And yet these same Israelites, they lived under the thumb of an oppressive regime, an empire that forced them to live under harsh slavery, being beaten, an empire that actually came to them when their children were born and took their babies and threw them in a river to murder them. Now, can you imagine being an Israelite, living under those conditions, and then hearing that your God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, always forgiving? You know, it would stir up and almost every human heart that's lived in those conditions will be, but what about, what about that? What about that? The murder of my baby. And God says, he does, he says, I don't leave the guilty unpunished. I think with this kind of perspective, we can all acknowledge that, man, justice is a good thing. It is a needed thing. But what we get caught up is some of the language here. And I, I want to just deal with the language of this really quickly, okay? Because here's what he says. He says he punishes the children for the sin of the parents. Now, what in the world does that mean? Okay, right from the start, I want you to know it does not mean what it seems to mean at face value. And you go, well, how do you, how do you know that? What does it mean? Well, let's just look. So in uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, Moses, the same guy who hears these words, is going to write in Deuteronomy chapter 24 about God's laws for the Israelites. And here's what he'll say. He's talking about crimes or sins that are punishable by death in the Israelite community. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, he says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Clearly, this is not a thing where it's like, okay, father, you sin, so now your son gets the punishment. Or grandmother, you sin, and now your grandson gets the punishment. This is not what he's describing here. I think there's three simple things you can take away. God is speaking about the, the principles of sin. And what happens when sin, wickedness, and rebellion seeps into humanity? I'll give you three simple things. I wish I had more time to unpack all of these. But the first one is this, is that a parent's sin naturally has consequences for the children. 
Apparent sin naturally has consequences for the children. What do you mean? I, I'll give just a, a real basic example. I think the, the most obvious, you know, the most, uh, not most obvious, maybe the, one of the most prolific examples that we see of this in our culture is when a mom and a dad get a divorce, the children always suffer from the fallout. Now, I know that's not popular to say in our culture because our culture wants to say that, no, it doesn't affect the kids, it's okay. It does. When a mom and a dad get a divorce, children suffer the fallout, both immediately and in the long term. Children of divorced parents, they suffer from grief and trust issues, insecurity, a fear to commit in the future, a fear that their, every relationship they have is going to end up the same. You see, when, when there's a sin or wrongdoing in a, in a parent's life, the children are often the collateral damage. And I'm not picking on those of you who are divorced. I'm just naming one example. It's just a reality. But the second reality, it's not just that sin has con- parents' sin have consequences for the children. The second is that sin has this tendency to run in the family. I'll give you several examples for this one. Um, sin runs in the family. I think about maybe uncontrolled anger. Think about somebody who deals with uncontrollable anger. Did you know that underlying uncontrolled anger is a host of issues? There's insecurity. There's fear. There's an inability to work through difficult emotions or maybe a lack of know-how. And so anger is the first thing that spews out. If you have a parent who has uncontrolled anger and the underlying thing is they don't know how to deal with their emotions in a healthy way, guess what their kids are gonna learn growing up? The same thing. They're not gonna be trained how to deal with things. I think about any kind of addiction you can name. I mean, uh, children who have one parent struggling with uh, alcohol use or alcohol abuse, they are three to four times more likely of becoming an alcoholic themselves. It's not just genetic. It's because they have learned a pattern of relating and a pattern of dealing with that life that steers towards checking out. You see, sin often gets passed on one generation to the next. And so the, three th- you know, the first two things, first, we see that, man, the sins of the parents, they have consequences for the children. We see that sin seems to run in the family. And I think the thing that God is really trying to say right here, the third thing is that God will continue to deal with sin in every generation. He's gonna continue to deal with it. I think this is the main thing. The first and second that I said are true, But what God is really getting at here is that if a son or daughter continues in the sin of their parents, then God will keep working to get rid of that sin generation to generation until it's gone. Now, the actual purpose of this passage, though, is not even necessarily to lay out principles or idioms for parenting and children. There's actually a comparing and a contrasting that's going on in this passage. There's a Hebrew idiom at play here, the third and fourth generation What he's saying is, listen, he says, I maintain love to thousands and I punish the sin of three to four, to the third and fourth. The word generation is actually not even there. It was pulled over from an earlier chapter. The whole point of this is to go, man, God God is abounding in so much love and he wants to maintain that love and he's doing everything he can to maintain that love, but he, and he will forgive wickedness, rebellions, and sin to thousands of generations and yet he will not let the guilty go unpunished. He'll punish to the third or fourth. Which of these is bigger and more momentous and more abounding? It's the love of God. Thousands of generations compared to the third or fourth generation. And what we see here is the mercy is outweighing 
It's that this is the attribute that God is trying to lean into, and yet he says, I am a just God. And so the question we ask is, why punishment at all? And this is where we'll start to land it. Why punishment at all? The most simple way that I, I, I've been asking God, God, how do I help us as a church family understand your heart for justice? Why do you use the word punishment? The, 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 beloved, the burning desire of God's heart the thing he longs for more than anything else is to dwell with his people. This is what he wants. The burning desire of his heart is that he may dwell with his people. It's the picture we're given at the beginning of scripture. It's the picture we're given at the end of scripture. And God, the perfect and holy God, is longing to come down and dwell with his people. And yet he knows that a world that is marked by sin and death cannot stand in his presence. And so his whole purpose from the very beginning all the way to the end is to deal with sin so that he could be with us. And so he sends his son who takes on flesh, who receives the punishment that was due to all humanity and he hangs on a cross willingly to endure suffering for our sake. The ultimate picture of forgiveness that we get, I think... What I love, this description of God's character, it is almost like a word picture describing the whole gospel of God. That the eternal, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-loving God created humanity, sin crept into the world, creating distance between him and them, and he goes to every length to try to bridge that gap all the way to coming and putting on flesh himself and receiving the punishment that humanity was due so that he could eventually come down and be with his people forever. And yet when he comes, he knows there will be those who say, I don't need your forgiveness. I don't want your forgiveness. And he goes, you've got to know what that means for you. This is why Jesus, when he talks about his return, he so often includes judgment. Because there's coming a day when everyone will stand face to face to him and give an account for why they either received the gift he tried to give them or they spurned it. But you see, God aches to be rid of all injustice, all pain. That God aches for it. God's justice means that eventually we get to live in a world where there is no more evil. There's no more cruel dictators. There's no more corruption. There's no more abuse. There's no more school shootings. There's no more violence at all. There's no more racism. There's no more misogyny or exploitation of women and children. There's no more anxiety, depression, or mental illness. There's no more divorce, no more betrayal, no more breakdown in the family, no more evil at all. All of us long for this, and yet who is going to deal with all of these things? It is Yahweh Almighty, the compassionate and gracious God, who is slow to anger, but eventually will come and deal with all evil so that he can dwell with his people. This is the picture that God is trying to give us of who he is. Now, the question we have to ask is, how do we respond to this? Imagine being Moses, standing on the mountain, and God comes and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but not leaving guilty, the guilty unpunished. And he names all these things. And I want us to look at how Moses responds. Look in verse eight. It says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. 
Although this is a stiff-necked people, talking about the Israelites, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. I love this. How do we respond to this incredible God of glory? Moses, Moses didn't go, God, man, that's kind of harsh, God, to say you're going to punish the guilty. I don't know that I really like that about you. Moses didn't run away. Moses, first he worshiped. He went, whoa, you are holy. You are forgiving and just, merciful and just. And he bowed down on the ground and he worshiped him. And then he invited him. He said, God, I want you to come be with us. God, be with us. And then he asked for forgiveness. So this is what, this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take some time just to respond. We have communion uh, that's out. If you haven't gotten yours yet, it's on the bar and on the table. We're going to come to communion. It is the picture of the forgiveness of God for humanity through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to respond by worshiping and going, thank you, God. And the second thing is we're going to go, God, we need more of you, not less of you. So as you take communion, you can just look at one another and you can pray. You can just say, God, give us more of you, not less of you. And then we're gonna move on into a time of worship with one another. And there are some of us who we know there are things we need forgiving of. So I just wanna encourage you, if you know you need forgiveness, confess to one another as you commune. Come to the respond banner. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Let's worship. Let's invite God for more of him. And let's confess with one another and trust that he is the forgiving God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I love you. Thank you, Father, for being slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Thank you for being compassionate and gracious. Thank you for, Father, being forgiving. And Lord, we thank you that you are a just God. Lord, we long for the evils of the world to be gone. Would you help us to be quick to confess the places in our own heart where we need your forgiveness? Lord, as we come to you around the cup and the bread, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us through your spirit. Lord, if there's anything I've said this morning that is not honoring to you, just erase it from our memories. And Lord, I pray that you would draw each of us closer to who you are as we break bread, as we take the cup, and as we worship you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.